Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Kit Spade has spent much of her life caring for others, and then she wrote a book entitled A Selfless Life. But it's not what you think. Take it away, Kit. Well, um, for a while, I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, And then my husband got sick, so then I became a caregiver. And then I opened a bakery, actually, with my mom. And a month after I opened, she passed away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Is your husband okay? Yes, he uh, he has primary progressive multiple sclerosis, and it literally, Alice, it just hit like all of a sudden he couldn't see out of his one eye, and it was really weird because he was a volunteer firefighter, and I thought, you know what, maybe you got something in it. Let's call the doctor, and I didn't know anything about it. This was ten years ago. I had no, I, I didn't really hear about that. He had some pretty like intense drug therapy that he had to do every three months he was in the hospital with another ms flare-up um he has over 30 lesions on his brain and his spinal cord and then now it seems to kind of have leveled off um knock on wood so i also have a special needs daughter so i took care of her that's why i was a stay-at-home mom for so long wow yeah and then when my mom passed away i had to take care of my dad. (laughs) So it was kind of like, all right, I guess that's, I guess that's my goal in life. And it's funny because everybody thinks that the name of the book is about being a caregiver and about my life story. And it's absolutely not. (laughs) I saw that when I read the blurb, I went, "Mm, oh, because when, when I called you the first time and you said, I'm with my dad, I thought, oh, that must be what her book's about. It must have something to do with this. Right. Everybody thinks that. And it's not even close. Well, what inspired a book called A Selfless Life, if not <laughs> A Selfless Life? <laughs> it's funny because if you read it, when you read it, I'm going to say when you read it, mm-hmm. um, you'll see. Um, but it is all about living a selfless life. And all of the characters in the book have something selfless, you know, that they have to accomplish or, you know, it's part of their career. It's part of their jobs. So I know within the fire service from experience, from being in it pretty much my entire life and generations in my family, that was one motto they had. And my husband, um, my husband became a volunteer A few years after we got married, we got married pretty young. So he became a volunteer. And then I decided to be a part of it with him because, you know, I wanted to do that with him. So what did you do? I was actually the president of the fire company. (laughs) That's a tough job. It was not the, the greatest. Unfortunately, there was a lot of proving that I had to do to the individuals around me because I was, I was a female in a, in a man's, you know, atmosphere basically. But it was, it ended up being pretty great with learning from them and them learning from me and building such a, a 
a thriving fire company, literally right across the street from my house. And a lot of my own experiences, you know, I kind of put a little bit on paper and, you know, changed, changed some of it around, um, you know, to make it a fun story for people. Did you ever write before? I always have. I've always, I've always written. Um, this was my first published book. I actually have done ghostwriting for quite a few years now um, because it was something easy that I could do at home while I was taking care of everybody. So when I finally decided that I was, I took a little job across the street from my house. It was a beer distributor and the gentleman was looking for somebody just to kind of run the office during the day. So as I was sitting there, I just came up with this idea. I was like, you know what? I'm going to write a, like a novella, nothing crazy. And I was like, you know, I want it to be kind of like a love story. So first it ended up, (laughs) first it ended up being like a different kind of love story. Like what kind of love story? Like a, like the sexy novels. What's wrong with a sexy novel? I love a sexy novel. Nothing, absolutely nothing. But having two girls, I, I knew, especially my oldest, I, I just revealed, I just told her that originally that's what the book was. And she was like, mama, I am so glad that you did not write that. I would be mortified. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so that's originally what it was. And I mean, start to finish, that is originally what I wrote and it was graphic and not what you would expect from after reading what is now to what I originally wrote. I mean, the, our, the main character is Belle and she is mid age, late thirties, early forties. She has two kids. She loses her husband tragically. And she is just trying to figure out life. She's just trying to raise her kids. She works for the township that they live in. Um, she does all human resource stuff. And her mom, she is originally from around the same area. At, at least that's what Belle has always been under the impression of. And her mom had moved out of the area when she was about 19 and she didn't live there very long. Her dad, um, which would be Belle's grandfather, just he was a minor. So, you know, the book is based in Pittsburgh, like right outside of Pittsburgh. So back then it was, you know, a lot of mining and most people that were working there came there for, you know, to get a job as a miner. So there's a lot of backstory with her mom. There's a lot of things that Belle doesn't know. There's a lot of secrets that she doesn't know. Is there a lot of intertwined stories that Belle doesn't even realize? And when it comes to light later in the book, she is flabbergasted, I guess you could say, about you know, these things that she never knew about her mother and she didn't know about this town that she lives in for the last six years. And, you know, so there's a lot of things that, you know, that reveal themselves to her. So that's why I ended up, I actually have three more to this story. I have three more books. (laughs) Oh, it's a trilogy. Yeah. To answer questions from the first one and then answer questions from the second one. And then finally, you know, everything is done. 
um, because there's a lot of unanswered questions within a selfless life. And, um, you know, some things do come to light, you know, and you do get resolution on some things, but there are things where people are, were like, what is happening? And I had the intention all along to, to write multiple books for it. So it, it, you know, makes me happy that people are like, I need more. I need to know like what happens to this person? What happens to that person? Um, she has a love interest. His name is Corey. Um, he is, he is probably the main male character of the book. Okay. And his father and her mother have a very long history together, which she had no idea because she didn't know her mother lived there long enough for her to really have a history with anyone. Okay. So when she finds this out, first, she's hurt that her mom never told her. And second, now she's like, well, what else haven't you told me? You know, what other secrets are there? And Corey is kind of the same with his father and his, you know, and his mother, where he's like, what do I not know? What, uh, you know, what other secrets is this town hiding from us? And it's a specific, it's a specific age group that is, that is um, a part of kind of all the secrets. So it's kind of like the, the parents of the, the younger characters in the book, they would have been early 20 somethings and late, late teens in the sixties and seventies. Okay. So, and the book is based in the 2010s. But they're all living selfless lives. <laughs> the majority of them, yes. Corey is a captain with the fire department. He does a lot of training with the, with the kids and stuff. Belle's husband, who passed, he was a paramedic. Pretty much every character is a part of either the firehouse, the police department, or the hospital. Okay. Do you get to go out and talk about your book? So I have a few book signings set up. One is at my community center because I figured I wanted to start at home. And then the other one is at one of the local Barnes and Nobles, which I'm really excited for. It sounds like people have read your book because you said they're looking forward to yes. the next one. Yes, I have sold 200 copies so far. I'm so happy with that. I mean, obviously, uh, what writer would not want to be a bestseller right away? But that comes with time, right? Yeah. You know, it comes with time and a little bit more maturity when it comes to how you write and the length of your novels and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just a it's a work in progress and it's something that I'm learning. And I know that because I manifest so many good things in my life, I know I'll get to that point. You sound like you know a lot about writing. I mean, you were a ghostwriter. How did how did that happen? That actually happened by accident. Um, my mom was a typesetter. She used to um, she used to have her own business. It was called Graham Graphics. She would set up books for people, you know, for printing and stuff like that. And it was really hard, you know, in the early two thousands to, you know, kind of really find anything to do um, without a without a degree. So. I helped my mom a lot with her business. And then I happened to talk to a couple of the clients that she had. And, you know, they had asked for a few things that I had written before. And it was just a bunch of different, you know, short stories, poems and whatnot. And there were two gentlemen and they were partners and they wrote periodicals. Technical writing. Yes. And, you know, they would just give me a topic and, you know, I would have to do my research on it and do the legwork, write everything up and, 
give it to them. And if it was sufficient for them, they would, you know, they would print it in their periodical. And if it wasn't, they would send it back. So you've been writing since grade school then? Yep. And then finally, you decided to pull the trigger. Well, when my mom passed, yeah, I just was like, because I was never going to get a selfless life published originally, because it was a smut novel. (laughs) I just, I really wrote it just for me. Did you enjoy writing it? I did. Was that kind of an escape for you? Very much so. It took me 17 years to do this book. I stopped writing uh, because, you know, my kids kind of took over, you know, they started getting older and life took over. So I just put the book honestly in my bottom drawer of my dresser and I never went back to it. And then when my mom passed, I got a journal and I started writing to her since she had passed. I figured that was still my way of connecting with her. Yeah. And I got a grief counselor, um, especially with with all of the things that have happened in my life. I, I didn't want to get into a bad place in my head. So I decided to get a grief counselor. She was the best decision I could have made. When we were talking before our last session, she had said, what is your, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? And I told her I started writing a book and she was like, okay. So I told her about the book and, you know, losing my mom, it was, it was a very, it was very impactful on my life. My mom was my best friend. Um, she was 71. She had a massive heart attack in my living room. It was very, it was very traumatic, but it brought positive things from it. And this book is one of them because I truly believe had she not passed, I would have never picked that book up again. I would have never rewrote it to what it is today because life was too busy. It taught me to calm down and slow down. So I finished it within three months. I rewrote the entire story in three months. That's amazing. You know, I talk to people all the time and first of all, it's hard to get off the mark and get the book done. And a lot of times it takes a life event to yeah. kind of push you over the edge and say, I'm going to yeah. do this now. But then it's like, you've already set up book signings. People are have such a difficult time with that. Can you give them any advice? Well, I've always been the type of person that if you say no, it's okay. I'm just going to go to the next door. And if they tell me no, eventually one of those doors is going to tell me yes. And I truly believe that I I don't really give up too often. So when I first started my research on what would be the best options for me for book signings, uh, I mean, the community center for my town was not even that, that, that wasn't even an issue that was, you know, just contacting them and, and telling them about the book. And they actually ordered the book and put it in the, in the library, which was very exciting. Um, but when it, so for the Barnes and Nobles, because, um, my book is print on demand, it's very difficult to get a lot of, um, attention from booksellers like Barnes and Noble, um, any of your local bookshops, because they don't want to print on demand. They want these big publishers that, you know, they can call them and say, I want six of these books here. And I don't think it makes it, it, it's not, it, it doesn't make it any less of an importance on who it is that your publisher is. It's more of 
what the store is particularly looking for. So when I emailed, I cold called everybody because I felt that was the only way that I was going to get it done. I don't have a marketing team. I am my marketing team. So, you know, you have to be your own team. You have to be your own advocate to contact these places. And if they say no, okay, thank you for your time. And like I said, you move on to the next one. Now, I've had quite a few say yes. There are stipulations. They order the books and whatever they don't sell, they send back, which kind of stinks because I would really like them to keep them in their store. (laughs) But that's that's not how they work if you are a print-on-demand author. So I read a lot on how to send a, a, a query letter to these bookstores that I think that was one of the most crucial parts was because it wasn't just, hi, I wrote a book. I would like to come in and sell my book. Could you guys do a book signing for me? No, it was, you know, I introduced myself. I told them that, you know, I was, Um, a new author and I'm a local author. So a lot of your local bookstores like the fact when you're local and you tell them I am a local newly published author. Um, I told them a little bit about the book. I put a blurb in there, put a little blurb about myself and I told them what my expectations were. I didn't beat around the bush. Similar to how you would write a query letter to a literary agent is very similar to what I did to the bookstores. And had some interest from a few of the bookstores and a few of the Barnes and Nobles that are local to me. I, I live about 20 minutes from Philly. So there are numerous bookstores in Philly that were like, yeah, we can do that. Really? Um, yeah. That's Which great. was great. Yeah. But you have to be your biggest advocate. You have to be your number one fan. You have to do all of the legwork. Unless you have money, which I know from... <laughs> From personal experience, you do not have the money right away to have this fantastic marketing team. You know, you don't have people backing you right away and saying, hey, I'm going to give you all this money so you can go do this. Nope. You have to do it all on your own. Yeah. And I always tell people, they'll say, well, you know, somebody reached out to me. I swear there are people out there just looking for those new authors so they can go, hey, we'll handle this. We'll handle that. And they're not going to do anything. They're not. And I feel bad for people who write books that can't get behind them. It's like, well, I don't have a great personality. I really don't like talking in front of people. And it's like, well... You really, I have to say, there are some people who are great with social media. But like you said, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And when Mm -hmm. somebody says no, that's got to be your inspiration. No. Absolutely. That needs to give you that drive. Like you need to be like, okay, fine. They said no. Thank you for your time. Moving on. Let's move to the next one. Because eventually when you start getting a yes, then it's like, oh, (laughs) this is awesome. And then you get another yes. And then you get another net. Yes. But then you might get another no. And it's like, okay, that's okay. Right. That's okay. Right. You know, and you just have to be okay with being turned down. And I, that's a huge fear. I know from other writers, you know, I'm on so many different writers groups and, and stuff, especially on social media. And I read a lot of them and I sold 200 books in one month. Wow. 
And, you know, I have other writer friends who have been, who's had a published book for over a year and they haven't even sold 200 books in over a year. And they're like, Kit, what are you doing? Right. And I'm like, I am putting myself out there. I'm not afraid to put myself out there. I'm terrified to talk in public. Absolutely terrified (laughs) to the point where I want to get sick. But I know I have to do that. Like, I have to put myself in that uncomfortable situation because I'm the only one that can. I can't have anybody speak on my behalf because people don't want to hear that. They want to hear you. They want to hear what you have to say. Right. So, yeah, it's. It's a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I know. And people say, you know, I thought they were going to promote me more. And, you know, I don't have time to go to New York or I don't have to. And I always say to people, you don't have to start no. where you are. But yep. nobody is going to promote your book better than you are. It's your yep. baby. Absolutely. It's your Absolutely. Baby. You have a lot of positive energy. But you know what? You've been you've been to hell and back a couple of times oh, in your life. too. You were homeless. Yeah. yeah. That kind of gives you a different perspective <laughs> on life, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Keep moving, baby. Yes, that's it. Keep moving that's all forward. You can do. Kit, what a pleasure. I'll, I'll talk to you when you finish that next book. That sounds like a plan to me. All right, Kit, you take care. Thanks, Alice. You too. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to baby boomers. Retirement communities are booming. And Dr. Judith C. Kayla is taking notes. You can read her observations in her book entitled Race to the Finish Line, Social Dynamics in Retirement Communities. Give us a little bit about your background. I was a clinical psychologist um, and I had a private practice. At first, I started in an agency um, helping underprivileged people. And I worked with severely disturbed population. But then when I opened my private practice, I was able to serve an underserved area of Ohio. And it was very satisfying. The practice grew and grew until there were 18 people there. And it's still there and probably with more people. So what made you turn your attention to our aging population in retirement communities? When I was ready to retire, I I look up social aspects of anything I get involved in or are more interested in that than financial things. And I noted how many books were written about financial aspects of retirement and very little about social dynamics. So I think without even consciously thinking about it, but that's my point of view in life. As I retired myself, I noticed all these um, peculiarities and characteristics in different communities. Like um, in Tennessee, I, I had a summer home in Tennessee for many years, which was absolutely lovely. The people were so altruistic and very warm and inviting Southerners. And then in Florida, but I noticed some of the characteristics in the community, which was supposed to be a retirement haven, were so similar no matter what the demographics were. So I was sort of intrigued by that. And there seemed to be a person in each community that was designated a mayor. We never called them that, but they acted like the mayor, glad-handing everybody and sort of feeling they were in charge of things. And other people who excelled at athletics seemed to have their role in the community. And if somebody dropped out, moved, Somebody just seeped right into their role. So it was like studying a community with 
group dynamics. Well, aren't those group dynamics the same ones that you find in a church, in any kind of group? There's somebody who kind of assumes the leadership role, whether they're designated a leader or not, and there's different groups within the larger group. Yes, I think it's very applicable to any community, even perhaps an apartment building in New York. But I think it's more intense here because it may be one of the last communities one lives in. And the proximity of the people to one another is very close. In fact, we used to make jokes if people were snowbirds, they called them in Florida, that it was time for us to leave and go to our summer homes. We were getting on each other's back. When I started to think about it, retirement is pretty new, in my opinion. And Although our fathers and our grandfathers sat on porches on rockers, this generation is very obsessed with exercise, activity, and independence. And most of the people in the communities I lived in were rather successful. So I was really surprised at the competition at this point in our life and the aggressiveness against one another. It was almost like being back in the second grade, if not in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Attendance at any HOA meeting may be called a situation. People who are used to being in charge of corporations or law practices or physicians sitting and arguing with each other, it's like a bunch of chiefs with no Indians. And everybody's right. Everybody's angry and totally hostile as if their entire reputation and their careers hinged on what the results were. And they seem to be a lot of control freaks, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the more useful things in your book? You say that, you know, you offer observations and insights that may be identifying. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I know that we're all obsessed with a lot of things that this end of the age spectrum. And one of them is dieting and health. That's why pickleball is off the charts. Most of the people playing pickleball are over 60 and it's very competitive. A lot of them wind up in the hospital. It's an orthopedic delight because some of them are not realistic about their limitations. For others, it's excellent. And there seem to be, of course, different groups of retirement, the oldest retired, the middle group, and the newest retired are are quite young these days and in very good shape. So it's wonderful that they practice all these sports. But I think part of my point was that we should be winding down a little bit, but we seem to be winding up in an effort perhaps to deny our demise, I'm not sure. The other tips that I have in the book to get off a morbid subject is exit letters. I thought that was a rather good idea that having a large party for all one's friends when you're still here above ground might be fun. And also writing exit letters to all those uh, dear people who mean so much to you and letting them know how much they meant. It's also a good way, I guess, of taking stock of who your friends are and what your needs are, and your pleasures, I guess. And I think we we can't take our things with us or how neat our houses are or aren't, but our friends and loves 
seem to be what sustain us the most in the most current research. A friend of mine's mother is 105, and she's in a facility that has a bridge game every single day, and she plays well. So that, I think, is very personal because I myself am very social. I wouldn't mind at all being in a facility like that. I think of it as a hotel where your meals and your um, housekeeping needs are taken care of. It it's kind of sounds ideal to me. You said that the book defines our generation's approach to aging. When you say our generation, what generation are you talking about? People in their 60s, 70s? Right, up to 90s. And I I think it's the World War II, children war babies, and then um, baby boomers, and then the, the new generation coming in, which are at odds at some point. And there's a lot of ageism, I believe, that's very subtle that goes on with the younger newly retired watch the older retire with some disdain because they think more and more exercise will ward off any disability or incompetency. I think there's a huge pull in our culture of independence versus communal living. So we see it played out in a lot of the um, activities. But that's the other thing that's kind of interesting here. In many retirement communities, there are parties for every occasion, dances. It is and could be a paradise, except everybody has some disillusionment about what it turns out to be for them, and they start being very critical of their environment. So I used to joke and call this community Camelot or complain a lot. So it's one or the other. I think that's just people, though, don't you think? There are people who are never going to be happy. It doesn't matter. Oh, absolutely. Yes, hard to please people. And um, they miss New York bagels or um, deli. And I, <laughs> well, you know, when you moved here, you didn't, you can't expect that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So are, what's your situation? Are you in a retirement community? I do live in a lovely gated retirement community. And most of these were started around golf courses with country clubs, but they seem to be less with the golf courses because of the expense and time involved in golf and more with clubhouses that have all kinds of activity and people, as I said, in very close proximity. Do you enjoy living there? Oh, I love it. Even though I'm, I look at it with a critical eye and, and sort of irony, um, I'm having the time of my life. I never knew retirement could be so much fun. Well, not everybody can afford to live in places like that, right? Right, but we can all afford the beautiful programs on TV, movies, streaming, writing. doesn't cost any money. So getting involved in activities wherever you live, I remember moving one summer to North Carolina and joining a senior center there. Within 20 minutes, I had friends, right. <laughs> an art class, a yoga class. I was thrilled. So are they letting you do a book signing at your facility? Yes, I had one scheduled. We'll see if it comes across because there was a complete overthrow of all the administration here. This community... Houses were finished right when COVID started. So it created some peculiarly aggressive and disappointing dynamics. The people really were isolated for two years. 
mm. and didn't have a chance to bond as much and were very scared and angry. Also, the political climate, I think, that we've had the last few years encourages defending oneself in bizarre kind of ad hominem ways where people attack one another. Yeah, I think we're all seeing that. Um, our ability to accept that it's okay to have a different opinion. Yeah. It's okay. It's not my job to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. It's not your job to convince me. I will hear you out, but I find people don't even want to hear each other out anymore. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You're wrong. You're wrong. There's nothing right about the right. There's nothing right about the left. It's all wrong. And so I would think that if you're in a situation, a communal situation, that could get pretty uh, touchy. Yes, there are enemy camps, so to speak, which has been seen throughout history. But at this sophisticated level, it's sort of shocking yeah. that uh, people can tolerate uh, different opinions and that the stakes are so high. Well, I think your book would be really interesting reading for a lot of people. And you're in Florida. There's a lot of communities. Yes, certainly. I'm very mobile and active for my age, which I guess is the mantra of this generation. How old? Are, do you mind me asking how old you are? Yes, I'm proud of it. 82. I think people think I'm much younger. So younger people approach me. And then when they realize my age, they say they wish I would have been their grandma. Aww. <laughs> And I think they mean it well, but it, it feels like a little bit of a slap in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a very kind and engaging person, and I think you've written a very interesting book, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. You got it, Judy. You have a great day. You too. Thanks so much. Kathleen Butcher just moved to a new home in the Ozarks with two little girls 14 months apart, and the oldest one is just under a year. And somehow, somehow, she found time to write, hey, look at me. When do you write? <laughs> uh, I do it as inspiration hits. Uh, if I think about something, I'll uh, write it down in my phone and might come back to it later. But that's kind of how I, how I operate. Well, I mean, how long have you been operating like this? Oh, uh since my daughter was uh, a newborn, basically. Is she your inspiration? Yes. Uh, the, my uh, book was based on a, a song that I wrote for her. She was on, uh, I like to say, she was on nap strike. She wouldn't take a nap. So I, <laughs> I created the song for her in hopes that she would go to sleep. Uh, and so I just wrote it down. And then I ended up sending it off to publishing after uh, after a couple of days to, just to see if it would make progress and turns out it did <laughs> how how old was she when she went on nap strike uh about five months old oh you poor thing <laughs> what you want to sing the song for me uh it goes uh i'll, I'll send you a part of it um uh, i'll send, the part of it i'll give you is her nickname is turkey because she was born right around thanksgiving because hey look at me hey look at me i'm the turkey on the farm that oh, sorry the turkey from the flock the turkey from the flock Gobble, gobble, gobble on the turkey from the flock. Did it get her to sleep? Unfortunately, no. She got a little bit wired up because of the rhythm to it. <laughs> oh, because it's kind of, it sounds like a pretty up song. I was wondering, like, did you sing it slow? And <laughs> uh, No, I started out slow as I was, like, creating it, and then it just kind of got a beat from there. Uh, but she was <laughs> like, mm, I'm still not taking a nap. <laughs> oh, man. So this song became a book. Yes. Uh, the book is about farm animals and the uh, 
sounds that they make. So it's cows, they moo, sheep, they baw. Each animal is associated with like a cows from a herd and they go moo, moo, moo. And it says, hey, look at me. And there's going to be a, a picture of an animal. And then the, the, the next scene is like zoomed up on that animal. The first animal is a rooster. And they go, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. I'm the rooster from the farm. The fr- rooster from the farm. Cock-a-doodle-doo. I'm the rooster from the farm. And then the next one goes, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. And it's the next picture is a herd of cows. And there's one in the very back that's kind of peeking out. Uh... And on the next scene is the cow zoomed up. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. I'm the cow from the herd. The cow from the herd. Moo, moo, moo. I'm the cow from the herd. That's so cute. Do your, <laughs> do your little girls love this book? Yes, yes. Um, I showed my daughter uh, the book, and sh- whenever she sees it around, she'll go pick it up and want me to read it to her. Is this the only book you're going to write, or are you thinking maybe? I have a second one in editing right now called uh, You're Going to Be a Big Sister Soon, and it's about my daughter becoming a big sister to her little sister. You know, she comes home, and it's just her and mommy and daddy, and then all the things that we would do with when it was just hers, like go to the road trips, go go to the zoo, things like that. And then as it goes on, the baby comes home and goes, how am I supposed to feel about, you know, this, this little baby coming in, and is, do my mom and dad still love me? the way that they love this new baby and at the end she's like oh I I can accept you (laughs) does she have a difficult time um at the beginning I don't think she quite understood what was going on but then she realized a little bit that oh I'm not getting all the individual attention that I was getting before so like I would be holding holding my newborn and then she would be trying to crawl into my arms going okay hold me too so it took a little bit of adapting but now my uh littlest one has been around for seven months she's like oh okay i got this <laughs> it's it's more of just like how i interpret how she felt about bringing in a new family member yeah so are you kind of documenting your kids childhood through writing children's books sort of um as inspiration for me strikes the really ran- most random times. And so um, the book that I'm in publishing right now, You're Going to Be a Big Sister soon. One was in the living room screaming <laughs> for what reason, I'm not sure. And then the other one had just gone down to bed and she woke up. And so she started yelling. And at the same time, they were both yelling. I'm sitting on my bed and I'm, and it just it hit. I'm like, oh, this is what it's like. This must have been what it was like when your sister came home. And within a few minutes, I had the entire story written down. How about, you know, how about moving? Has that sparked anything? Uh, not yet. Although my father-in-law has has given me a, a little bit of an idea for another book. Uh, he had a, a he has a ranch up here, which is we moved closer because they have they have a ranch up here. And he had a cow show up on his property that nobody can figure out. It was a calf. And nobody can figure out where this calf came from. And it just joined his herd. So I'm thinking about maybe doing something with that. Oh, that's really cute. <laughs> All right. So now the question is, you're you're in a new place in the Ozarks. You've got two little kids. How do you promote your books? I'm hoping soon, uh, sooner or later that I'll be able to maybe go to schools or daycares or something and 
read or do story time at a library or something like that. Well, you know, it sounds to me that's going to be a natural progression for you because your little ones are going to start going to preschool and they're going to start going yes. to the reading time at the library. Do you have any advice for, for moms that might want to write something down but feel like, gee, I don't have time? Can you write when your child's screaming? Uh, some people can't. I, w I wouldn't say that's the best time to do it. I just happened to be in another room at the time that that started. And they both my kids like to trigger each other. So if one starts, the other one will start. Oh, God. Uh, but uh, my my advice is that like when you have a moment of peace, <laughs> depending on what your piece is, to write, thing, write things down. Uh, because me personally, I lose things very fast i've had whole ideas i'm like i gotta write this down if something happened and i didn't and now i'm like man I, that was such a great idea i know it was a great idea but i didn't write it down so i don't have it anymore right. and so my advice is just take the minute or two write it down i have a i have running notepad notebook in my phone of just ideas like rhymes stories ideas and i have like pages and pages of things in my phone that i've just written as I've gone by and when the kids are not awake or napping or something, I'll go back and look at them. Or if I'm, if I have a free time out to myself, yeah. I'll look at them on my phone, but that's how I manage it is by keeping it on my phone because I, I'll always have my phone on my person because I don't really, I don't let my kids have my phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so that, that's how I manage it. And you never wrote before this, like when you were a kid, when you were in school? I wrote I wrote a story when I was about eight, and that's what uh, made me want to become an author. Um, when you were eight? Yes. Okay. Uh, so that's when I that's when I really, like, picked up on writing. I was like, I want to do this uh, and write an actual book that's published. And, you know, through the years I've just, I've written, I don't do any, like, journaling or anything like that, but I've just written things on paper as I thought about them through the years. Like when I was a teenager, I would write, I just write some random thing down in a notebook every day. One time it was about a deep sea diver that was afraid to dive. <laughs> um, That's a problem. Uh, it, that is a problem. Yeah. Uh, and so doing all that um, has helped, I think, in how I prepare now with writing taking the time to write those one or two sentences down or go back and look at something. It can even, it's even been years down the line that I've looked back at things like when I was cleaning my room at my parents' house after I was in the military, I came back and I found that story I wrote when I was eight on notebook paper. I don't know if I still have it, but I was like, I still want to do this. Oh, how long were you in the military? Um, I was in almost seven years. When did you join? Uh, 2012. Were you just out of school? No, I, I had been in the workforce for a little while, uh, but I'd always wanted to join the military. So at 21, that's when I went in. How was that? I liked it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I got I was stationed in Illinois for about a year and a half, and then I spent the rest of my time stationed in Alaska. How was that? Uh, Alaska is beautiful. Uh, I don't think I'd want to live there again, but the five years that I was up there, it was great. What did you do? Uh, I was a paralegal, so I worked on the military court-martials and claims and uh, legal assistance and things like that. That must have been really interesting. Very interesting, for sure. Uh, when I got up to Alaska is when I met my husband. 
uh, we got married about eight months after we met. Um, Jeez. And then we waited to have. <laughs> you, eight months? Love at first sight? Or is it that bad in Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from what I was told when I got up there, uh, the guys outnumber women about eight to one in the military. Oh, my. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what I heard. Okay. But uh, we, me and my husband became friends first, and then we started dating. And then, yeah, eight months later, we were married. And you just um, knew he was the one. Yeah. Aww. He, he was the one. What's your husband so, do? Currently, he works as a contractor for the post office. Great. Well, man, it was really nice talking to you, Kathleen. It was nice talking to you as well. You have a great day. Uh, you too. Eileen Danielson comes from a family of writers and not to be outdone. She takes us on a sci-fi adventure in her book, Awakening. So I guess writing is in your DNA? I would say yes. I mean, my my grandfather, um, he used to write poetry. Then I have an uncle who's a published author. And then my sister, actually, um, she does a little bit of writing as well. What's his name? Uh, it's M. Jude Gove. What's he written? Anything that we would know? Um, he's written a, a series called The Rings of the Gods and The Adventures of Helen Wheels. Did he inspire you? When it comes to him actually deciding to publish, I think that's really what he gave me a little bit of inspiration is here he took the time to take something he liked and put it um, on paper and put it out there for the world to see. And I think that's what helped me decide, you know, I want to be able to do, I should do that too. I've got these, I've already got them down. Why not let other people um, see the worlds I've created in my mind? When did you start writing? Actually in high school, because I mean, as for projects, that's one thing we all had to do is um, do some kind of creative writing for school. And I think I've taken some of those ideas and actually that's what some of my first stories that I've written were from, were from high school. And then I just kind of added on to them. But this is your first book, right? This is the first one I'm proud of. <laughs> I actually had, a, had another one published um, that I wasn't exactly proud of. It had too many mistakes and stuff like that in it. But this is the first one I'm extremely proud of that, that I love to tell people about. The first one, I went through a, a publishing company. And it just, I, I mean, I, it's like I did some research but it just wasn't what I expected. They told me a lot of things in my um, in emails, but then when it came down to the contract and reading all the fine print afterwards, that's when I saw the fine print, and it just was not a very good experience, and that's what held me back from wanting to publish again. Okay. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this again. This is something that I enjoy, and after talking with some of my friends, I decided, you know what? I'm going to look into publishing companies and I found one that so far I've loved I mean I've I mean they've made every bit of the experience very easy for me that's that's always nice to hear what inspired this book one of the things I am is I am a Trekkie okay. I have been for a long time but I watched an episode of Star Trek and I don't want to tell too much about the episode because that'll give a little bit of the book away but I remember watching this episode and it was they, they were under attack in a, a, a unique way. And I thought, you know what? That would make it actually a good story if it happened a little differently. And so that, that episode of Star Trek really is what inspired this, um, my story, Awakening. Who are your main characters? 
a physicist named uh, Derek. Okay. And he meets up with the leader of a group of people um, at a camp named Mallory. And then there's a few other people um, that he meets up with, Alec, who is basically one of the guys that helps keep Mallory safe because of the situation that they've they found themselves in. How did they wind up in a camp? Well, that's what you're trying to figure out. He starts off that he's going about his business. They, that's the story they all have is they're going about their lives. And next thing you know, they're at a place where they don't even know where they're at. And they just kind of got together in this camp to keep each other safe. But they really don't know where they're at. And as you read the story, you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to figure out where they're at, what brought them there, why they're there, and what's trying, what's chasing them, what's 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 um, going after them that causes them to live in so much fear. So, do they have to run from something together? They 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 do have to run. Yeah, and they try and keep torches and lights together to uh, to chase off whatever it is that's chasing them. But sometimes they are caught off guard and are by themselves, and they, then all they can do is just run and try and reach the camp um, or a place of safety. When you look at the situation, as you read the story, one of the things that they, their first thing they're told is that men outnumber women over 200 to 1. So they automatically put the woman in charge. So there's all these guys, and sometimes in the, each camp, there might be just one woman, and they're like, you know what? Instead of us trying to fight for who's in charge, she's going to be in charge. All decisions will go through her. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, so they don't have to worry about um, anybody. If, if anybody does try and basically take over, they're just kicked out of the camp. And they're even told, if you're kicked out, the odds of your your survival, they're like, well, none ever have. So your book focuses on a few characters, but there's hundreds of people in various camps. Exactly. They all have the same story. They don't know where they're at or what's going on. Are there any conflicts between any of the characters? Not really conflicts, no. I mean, because they don't know people's backgrounds. They've had people come to the camp that have tried to hurt some of the women because because they don't know their background. And they found out that these guys were murderers and stuff. And so in those cases, they just kick them out of the camp and stuff. So as for actual conflicts among them, there isn't really any. So do they ever see what they're running from? That's actually when you're when you're reading the story, you find out that none of them ever have ever seen it. And so that's what they're trying to figure out what it is that's out there. Is it a feeling that they get? I mean, how do they know they're being chased by something? They can hear something. They hear what sounds like growling. So they think it's an animal, but they also feel strong gusts of wind. So that's why they know it's but that's how they know whatever it is. Is coming as the wind just picks up and pushes pushes at them. So they're like, "Uh oh, something's coming. We need to get out of here." Whenever I talk to sci-fi authors, usually they're following other sci-fi authors, mm-hmm. or they're Comic Con fans, or you know, they seem to have like, "Are you any of the above?" I've never actually been uh, been to a Comic Con. I've always wanted to go, but I mean, I have looked into different some a few websites um about fan fiction uh writers and stuff just to kind of get ideas on how they write their stories because one of the things i was worried about especially since like i said the inspiration for this from the story was from star trek i was worried about plagiarism so i'm like going okay i don't want to look too much into that because i don't want don't really want to get 
the feeling like I'm plagiarizing something. Right. So you're you're clear, right? Yes. You're all good to go? I'm all good to go, yes. And, and it seems that there's a lot of people who take pieces of other books, uh, TV shows or whatever, and then spin off their own story. That seems to be a common mm-hmm. thing. Is that what fan fiction is? That actually is. Yes, that's what a lot what fan fiction is. Is like they'll take, I mean, I'm going to, like I said, I'm a Trekkie, so I'm going to keep using Star Trek as my illustration. That's fine. I love Star Trek, but my, I, you know, I, I go back to William Shatner. I mean, hey, I've got all of those. No, you don't. Yep, got all of them. I even what's funny is my my brother-in-law actually just recently found me a little Admiral Kirk uh, 50th anniversary edition of him. No. Yep. What is it about Star Trek that fascinates you? I think when it comes to it is because anything can happen. That's one of the things I love about science fiction is you can kill a character just to bring him back to life a, a season later. <laughs> And I think, and it's one of those things, it's like anything that can't happen, can happen in science fiction. And I think that's what I like about Star Trek is it's things that, I mean, yeah, there is a lot of accurate science in it, but also, I mean, they put in that spin of anything can happen. And then, of course, they're also trying to make this real, helping us to see, hey, humans and other cultures can get along. We have to just work at it. Well, when you're talking about other cultures, usually, you know, when, when if you're talking Star Trek, it's aliens, it, yeah, right? Exactly. It's like, you know, other planets, people on other planets. But I, you know, it could definitely apply to getting along with people wherever they're from, just because they're different, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Do these people all look like people? They don't look different, right? Um, in my story, yes, they all look like people. And you're not going to say whether there's aliens involved. I'm not going to say whether whether aliens are involved. And plausible deniability here. You know what? I'm not saying there is aliens, and I'm not saying there's not aliens in this story. <laughs> Animal or alien? What is it? Exactly. And when you say awakening, so why the title? Are they waking up in the camp? Are the camps really where they come to their senses? Well, that's actually the kind of the more you read the story, you're going to understand it because it's actually more something someone's going to say in the story that kind of be, and because of the situation that they're in, it, it kind of fits that way. When you go out to talk about your book, cause you've set up some book signings and stuff, right? Yes. Don't people want to know more? They do. And that's what, I mean, that's why it's like one of those things I want to try and keep people hanging because a few people that have read my book and have given me feedback. One of the first things they say to me is this is really a page turner. Because you really have to read the story to understand what's going on. It's almost like uh, some of those movies that have the twisted in- ending. Yes. And that's basically what my what I wanted out of the stories. I wanted, I didn't want to, everybody to know from the beginning what was happening. I wanted them to read the story and realize, oh my word, that's what's going on, kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Now your next thing. What, what's you you you've got more books coming, right? I do. Yes. Um, my next, my next big one that I'm, that I'm working on and is actually a child, um, children's series. Okay. Um, um, it's based on my sister and I's 
um, our adventures with our imaginary friends. <laughs> Are they aliens? <laughs> um, you know, that would be great, but no, they're not aliens. <laughs> My kids had imaginary friends. I think it's the best. It's the greatest thing. Because like, just like with aliens, they can die and come back. <laughs> they can... Exactly. In our case, you know what? They made our room a terrible mess all the time. Did they? Yes, and my parents wanted to blame us, but, you know, it was really them. I, you know, I can't believe your parents. I cannot believe they did that to you. How dare they? I know. All right, Eileen, you take care. Okay, thanks. You too. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.